Well, let me tell you how excited I am. You know, we just got done with one series, and I'm excited to launch this new series, which we're calling Overshadowed. Subtitle is When Majesty and Mercy Meet. This word overshadowed caught my attention because as we're uh, getting past uh, October and into November, our thoughts naturally go towards the holiday season. We are officially in the holiday season. Thanksgiving is just a few weeks away. Christmas is just around the corner. Some of you have already, uh, maybe this last weekend, started putting out Christmas lights. Some of you already started listening to Christmas music, all right? Confess. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. And um, so you're already there. You're already past Thanksgiving. You're knocking on Christmas's door already. But here's the deal. You know, that word overshadowed is used two places in the Bible. One is when the Holy Spirit and the glory of God overshadowed Mary at the conception of Jesus. How many of you know when God's glory overshadows us, amazing supernatural things happen? And we should all be after the overshadowing of the glory of God. But also that word overshadowed is used when Jesus was transfigured on the mount and he became a blazing glory of God's presence. That word overshadowed is, explains the greatness of God's glory that overshadowed Jesus uh, as he was revealed again in, in the fullness of his beauty and glory and wonder right before all the, or the disciples that were with him. And so this idea of overshadowing perfectly brings together two separate extremes of God's character. One is majesty, his greatness, but the other one is his mercy, his nearness, his compassion to us. And that's really what I want to focus on over the next eight weeks uh, during this holiday season. Um, I want to ask you a question, though, as we get going this morning. Have, Have any of you ever read a book or a certain part of a book that just made you well up with emotion? Or maybe you were watching a movie and you found yourself crying, all right? I'm the kind of guy that I cry at the grand opening of a new, like, Walgreens store or something like that. It doesn't take a lot to set me off. Some of you might be a little tougher. But, uh, but when you see something that touches your heart, how many of you have ever wept, all right? Anybody read a book and you just started crying and all of a sudden there you are trying to pull it all together? All right. Now, sometimes it takes me a while to get into the book before I get messed up. But I read a book one time, and only one time, in which when I read the first sentence in the book, I had a God encounter. I dropped the book, I laid on my face, I wept before God, and I had a God encounter. All right? How many of you know you want to read more books like that? But here's the deal. What, what, what leads to a God encounter for me and what leads to a God encounter for you might be miles apart, all right? But this is what happened. I want to share it with you to set us up for today. The book I was reading was John Piper's classic book on preaching. It was, in fact, the title of the book, the title gets me fired up, The Supremacy of God in Preaching. That the focus of our preaching should be on preaching on the greatness and the supremacy and the power and the majesty of God. That's what the focus of all good preaching should be. And this is the way his book opens. This is the first sentence in the book, and it wrecked me. People are starving for the greatness of God. I read those words, and they exploded in my heart. Two things happened. First of all, I realized that it witnessed to me. And that at the core of my being, what I wanted more than anything was a fresh encounter with with a great God. An encounter that left me speechless in awe and wonder amazed at who he is and what he's done for me. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That book went on to say this. This was the next sentence. He talked about how people are pursuing all kinds of things with their life 
whether it's sex, whether it's money, whether it's prestige, whatever it is, all kinds of false idols they're after, but what they're really after is an encounter with a great God. And this is what he said next. He said, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. He said, the majesty of God is the unknown cure. And here's what I want you to feel with me this morning. I want you to feel the weight of our responsibility as God's people. The purpose of the church, the gathered, the called out ones, the purpose of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to put on display for a hungry, starving world the glory of God. People should come to our churches and encounter God. People should come into our corporate gatherings and sense the presence from another world. People should come and feel overwhelmed by the greatness and the majesty and the splendor and the love and the mercy and the kindness and the compassion and the myriad of God's other attributes that should all come together in this beautiful goulash of God's glory and it should wipe us out. And I want you to, I want you to feel this with me. How in the world does a lost world starving for an encounter with a great God, how do they experience him if not for us? Does anybody feel the weight of that? I laid on my face and wept because I was getting encountered by a great God, but here's the other reason I wept. I want to be a part of a people that are known for knowing a great, big, awesome, powerful God where there's stories told, where we tell stories, where we believe God for big things, when, where we feel the weight of wanting to so become like Jesus that when people see us and are with us, they're like, whoa, I never have experienced anything like that. I can't tell you how filled with joy I am and we're having a class on our, on, on our starting point class and when we get together with people and we say, you know, how did you get to Living Stones and what do you like about Living Stones? And I'll tell you what's my favorite testimony. The first Sunday I was here and the worship start, I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried because I sensed the presence of God in my life overshadowing my life. I mean, you know, that, those are great stories. Or I felt so loved when I came into this family. Oh, that's what, that's, that gives glory to our great God because our great God is the fountain, fountainhead of love. And so I carry this burden. I, I want my life, I want our lives to scream out loud that there is a great God and he is worthy of our faith and our belief and our trust and our confidence and he's worthy of everything that we have to offer because he's so great. That's the kind of God I want to serve. That's the kind of people, the kind of church that I want to lead, a people who are committed to magnifying and displaying the greatness of the glory of God. Now, here's the problem. This message this morning is called Holy Tension, and I'm not trying to sanctify unbelief or fear or being tense or stressed out. That's not what this message is all about. The holy tension I'm talking about is the need that we have to have good theology in our churches and good doctrine in our churches and to keep the attributes of God in perfect balance as best as we can as fallen human beings. We don't want to push one to the extreme or preach on one thing to the, to the deficit of another because that leads you to an unhealthy balance. Here's what we're longing for in this holy tension. And tell me if this is not the case. We long for a God who's so majestic and so awesome and so glorious 
enough that it demands our total worship. Are you with me? No one wants to give their lives or their passion or their time or their energy or their affection to a God who's not worthy of our affection. We, we long for a great and awesome God. Are you with me? But we also long for a God who's close and intimate enough that we can love him and experience his love. Can I get an amen on that? Greatness and intimacy, you know, transcendence and yet closeness. That's what we long for. So that's why I get nervous when I hear people talk about their church and they just they define their church by one of God's attributes. For instance, back in the day, you, you maybe attended a church that was a faith church. That was a church that emphasized a faith message. Now, there's nothing the matter with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But how many of you know if all you're playing is one note, eventually your, your faith message is going to get into hyper-faith message. It's going to fall into imbalance. Because all that God, that the Bible contains is not a faith message. It's broader than that. Or people that say, well, we go to a grace church. Well, what does that mean? Well, we just preach the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. Well, that's great. We all love the grace of God. But the grace of God is meaningless apart from the justice of God. The grace of God is meaningless apart from the holiness of God. It becomes cheap grace, it becomes hyper grace, and it becomes no grace at all. We don't want to be a church that's known for one attribute of God. How many of you know we want to enjoy all of them? And the, the challenge is to enjoy them in perfect tension. You know, there are certain pieces of machinery that don't work unless certain workings of that machine are kept in perfect balance or they just don't work at all. That's kind of the way the church is. If we get off on extremes and tangents in the body of Christ, we end up like the kid that comes home on Halloween night with 40 pounds of Reese pieces, you know? Hey, I love Reese's. But you better eat some broccoli for God's sake or you're going to die, all right? You can't live off Reese pieces. Uh, you got to eat some good food. In fact, how about this? A dessert, a nice dessert. Oh, praise God for dessert. God gave you taste buds to enjoy dessert. But doesn't a great dessert come after a full-course meal where you got the meat and the potatoes? No vegan stuff around here. I'm just telling you, right? Meat and potatoes, and I'm German. you got to have some, a hot roll with butter. No butter substitute. Butter. And then you move to your dessert, and you have a perfect tension. It's all in balance with a cup of coffee with no almond milk in the coffee. <laughs> Hallelujah. Come on, now we're starting to feel the glory of God. Here's what I love about Jesus. The Bible says that when we look into the face of Christ, we see the glory of the Father. Jesus said, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. Isn't that awesome? And Jonathan Edwards, 250 years ago, the great theologian, Jonathan Edwards, this is how he described the person of Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus, I'm going to use his nice big language, Jesus is an admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. Let me paraphrase that. In Jesus, we see this myriad of attributes which represent the glory of God, the greatness of God, coming together, diverse attributes coming together in perfect wholeness and oneness, revealing in perfect beauty the glory of God the Father. This is what he said. Follow with me. 
He said, in the person of Christ, meet together these things, infinite highness and infinite condescension. Isn't it amazing that the one who spoke the universe into existence floated in the womb of a teenage girl? Infinite highness, infinite condescension. How about this one? Infinite justice and infinite grace. Infinite glory and the lowest humility. Infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. How about this? I love this. The deepest reverence towards God. And at the same time, equality with God. That'll blow your brain. How about this one? Infinite worthiness of good. There was not any human being who deserved to receive more good and blessing than Jesus. And yet the greatest patience under the sufferings of evil. The one who deserved the greatest honor received the greatest attack at the hands of sinners. How about this? An exceeding spirit of obedience as Brent talked about, with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. Absolute sovereignty and yet perfect resignation. Self-sufficiency and yet entire trust and reliance on God. To look at Jesus is to look at beauty and awe and wonder and glory like none other because Jesus is holy tension in perfection. He he demonstrates the greatness of all God's attributes in perfect balance. And how many of you know, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to do the same. We need to work towards that same goal. So here's what I want to do. During the month of November, I want us to focus our eyes on the transcendence of God. What is the transcendence of God? It's the fact that he's not like us. It's the fact that he's other than us. It's the fact that he is exalted far above all of us and all of his creation. It speaks of the fact that God is exalted and different from his creation. In fact, check this out. The Bible reminds us that God is a consuming fire. God is the judge of all the earth. God is the Lord of hosts. He is God most high. And if there was one verse that would capture the transcendence of God, I think it's Isaiah 55. Verses 8 and 9, you can follow on the stream with me. This is what God says. And let the weight of this sink in this morning. My thoughts are nothing like yours. Can we just pause right there? God's saying that the way you and I tend to think, his thoughts are nothing like that. Have any of you ever tried to have like a five-year plan for your life? You know, you pray a little bit and you go, this is where we're, I'm going. And, and you chart your course out. Has anybody ever been, anybody ever arrived there? Okay, good. Because you know what? As soon as you try to figure God out, just start laughing. As soon as you try to figure out how he's going to do it, just, just quit. That verse should tell you, just quit. You, you, there's some information that's beyond our pay grade, all right? We don't need to go there. What that verse should tell us is we just need to trust God even when we don't have full understanding or revelation. God says, my thoughts are not like yours, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. I mean, you know, the problem in our culture today is we worship such a tiny, puny, pathetic God that if we can't figure it all out, as soon as something happens that people don't like, they start pointing their finger at God. Not smart. Your God is way too small. 
We should, when we encounter things that are painful in life, things that don't make sense, things that we have to process through, the best secret is to worship a big God, a large God, a transcendent God who says, my ways are not like your ways, my thoughts are not like your thoughts, but if you'll trust me, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are better than your thoughts, if you'll trust me, I'll take you to a place that's better than you can possibly imagine. That's how big God people think. My ways are not like your ways, the Lord says. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Let me just remind us this morning, God is not like us. He is God, we are not. He is holy, we are not. He is sovereign and infinite, we are not. He is perfect and pure. We are not. He is separate from us and independent from us. He does not need us. But I got news for us this morning. Every one of us needs Him. We are fully and always dependent on God Almighty. That is the truth. And to make matters worse, actually this is better, but it starts off worse, His transcendence has a moral dimension to it. Thomas Trevathan writes this, And the true God, he says, is distinct and set apart from all that is evil. His moral perfection is absolute. His character, as expressed in his will, forms the absolute standard of moral excellence. God is holy. He's the absolute point of reference for all that exists and is good. Across the board, he is to be contrasted with his creatures. And listen to this last line. At the heart... He is a glowing white center of absolute purity. I'll tell you a message that is missing from the church today is that message right there, that God is the glowing white center of absolute purity, that the holiness of God is the thread that runs through and holds together all of his beauty and attributes. How many of you know just the thought of coming before a holy God should cause us to take a step back and to think a little bit about what's happening. Coming into church to worship this God should cause us to think about the preparation of what happens before we get here. Should cause us, when we're taking communion each week, thank God we get to put a pause on our lives. You know, some people say, why do you take communion each week? It becomes just an empty religious thing. Are you kidding me? It's a chance each week to hold in your hands the broken body and the shed blood of God. And to remember that it was his absolute holiness that demanded payment for our sin. And the blood that you're holding and the body that you're holding are because God is a really big God. He's not like us. His holiness absolutely separates us, separates him from any one of us on our best day. And that should cause us to step back in awe and wonder. When we look at the man Christ Jesus, part of his beauty is the fact that he never ever did anything wicked in his whole life. Never a wicked thought, never a wicked act, never a wicked deed. And I don't know about you, but I can have a wicked thought before I get out of bed in the morning, like Brent demonstrated so clearly for us. (laughs) God's eminence is the other thing I want to focus on for the month of December. Nothing brings home the closeness of God than the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Imminence means God's near. It means he's present. It means he's active and he's involved in our world. He's present and active in nature and in history and in our lives. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. I love John chapter 1, verse 14, which probably captures the eminence of God better than any other verse. It says this, the word, the eternal Logos, the one who dwells in eternity, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's that holy tension in Jesus. I want you to see this morning that one truth cannot be fully appreciated apart from the other truth. God's transcendence and and his eminence must go hand in hand. Jesus Christ is the lion, but he's also the lamb. I want you to hear this. He's altogether dangerous, and yet he's loving. He is other, and yet he's intimate. He's majestic, and yet he's approachable. He's high and lifted up, and yet the Bible says he's as close as a breath away. Some of you happen to be C.S. Lewis fans, and in his great series on the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene there where Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great, fierce lion. And she says this, she tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She thought Aslan was a man. As we, how many of you know, if you're sane, you should feel nervous about coming face-to-face with a lion? Lions are meant to to, uh, create a sense of awe and wonder in human beings. She asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver gives these famous lines from C.S. Lewis's book. A lot of you are familiar with this. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king. Isn't that awesome? I fear that the problem with emphasizing the imminence of God is we have lost the fierceness of God. You know, everything Brent shared this morning was absolutely 100% true. Aren't you grateful that we can let God speak to us through our precious daughter's desire for coffee from Dunkin' Donuts and a breakfast wrap or whatever that was? And that God can give us an insight into who he is and how much he loves us by simply showing us a parallel between a relationship between an earthly father and a daughter. God's that close. And everything he shared that God wants us to be able to come into his presence and boldly and ask him for what we need. How about that passage of scripture that says, you know, you evil fathers know how to give bread to their kids and not a stone or not a serpent. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Isn't that a beautiful picture of a father? But you know what I'm afraid is that we almost turn God into a a Santa Claus. We almost turn God, if all we preach on is his fatherliness, we almost forget the fact that God is a consuming fire. We forget the fact, how about this to blow our minds? He's the high and lofty one who alone dwells in eternity. What does it mean to live in a realm with no beginning or no end? What does it mean to speak the universe into existence? What does it mean to be all-powerful? What does it mean to be the source of life? What does it mean to be the God who can speak and stop storms? This is a fierce and awesome God. In fact, 
Jonathan Edwards was also stunned by the Revelation passage that talked about the fierceness of the wrath of God. How many of you know the father, fatherhood of God loses its depth if it's not held in holy tension to the God who is so holy that the fierceness of his heart, of his wrath, burns against sin because sin destroys everything that's good and holy and just. You know why God hates sin? Because he's so loving. You know why God burns with a passion for sin? Because he hates everything that would come against his rightful rule and reign and everything that would destroy people made in his image and likeness, and he hates it with a burning passion. You know, I'll tell you this. Growing up, my dad was a great dad. But I feared my dad in a healthy way. I would never smart off to my dad because I valued my life too much. (laughs) And there are times when I would have had to say to my children, that is your mother. She is not your friend. She is not in sixth grade. She is not cool. She exceeds cool. She existed before cool was cool. And if you talk to her like that again, you will not be cool. Well, you might be cool because you will be dead in your body. Your body will not give off any heat any longer. Do you understand me? Sometimes there has to be course corrections because this wonderful mother or wonderful father who buy you Dunkin' Donuts or whatever is your parent. And you wouldn't be here if it were not for them. So honor them and respect them so that you have a long life. How much more do we have to honor and respect God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Yes, he is a good, good father, but he's dangerous. And we're going to talk about the dangerous aspect of God this month because you know why most Americans can't figure out what Thanksgiving is for? Because we have got such a puny, pathetic God that we put forth in the church in America that is no longer feared or stood in awe or reverence of. I found this to be interesting. Do you know what the best church growth method was in the New Testament in the book of Acts? It was dragging out dead people who lied to the Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible says happened. The people in Rome feared the church. And then it says, the Lord added daily those who were being added to the church. Isn't it interesting that people were afraid to be associated with Christians? Not because of the Christians, but because of the God the Christians worshipped. Because he was dangerous. But he was also good. He was scary, but he was kind. He was almighty, but he was compassionate. What an awesome mix. Have any of you parents ever taken your child? I always love to do this. Remember when it was the first snow for your two-year-old or whatever? Or remember when it was the first trip to the ocean? And you think, you know, you bring them out there and they got their little swimming pants on and you're holding their hand. I'm trying to do my best to get the picture here for you. And you're expecting them to go, oh, awesome, and to race into the water. And how many of you, like you put your kid on grass for the first time? 
what do they do? They cry. <laughs> Let me tell you this. You know why they cry? Because we haven't messed them up yet. You know what you should do when you put your fresh little baby buns on grass for the first time and you're touching this prickly green stuff that's everywhere? You should be in awe of grass because it might overtake you, eat you, hurt you, whatever, but it's everywhere and it's green. And you know how babies have an aversion for green stuff anyway. All right. Or how about when you take them to the ocean and they look out at the ocean and waves are crashing and the sea is everywhere as far as the eye can see. And maybe waves are crashing off of rocks and it's making loud noises and mist is flying everywhere. What do you want that baby to do? They should cry. Because oceans are beautiful. And oceans are dangerous. My wife would prefer any day of the week to be in a clear, domesticated body of water called a pool with floaties when just beyond the horizon on the other side of the sand is mystery and awe and fear. But most of us get tired of the domesticated pool because at some point you want to go out where there's sharks. Now we hope that nobody, no sharks decide to show up, but they're out there. Yeah, millions of them. And scary things we've never seen before. Eels. One time I grabbed one of those, one of those crab pinchers that was floating dead on the shore. And I swam out in the water and I blessed an unknowing swimmer with a little pinch on the leg. This kid let out a squeal and ran as fast as he could out of the ocean. I remember the first time when I was taking my kids to experience our vacation place that we went all of our lives. And I took some chicken legs and tied string on them and I threw them out by the rocks and I staked the, you know, on, the, on the shore. And the kids were out playing in the water. They were having, the, it was in the bay. It was all calm. The next thing I know, I start pulling that chicken leg in. There's a massive crab hanging on that chicken. And I scooped it up with the net and I brought that on the shore. And my kids are all in the water. And one by one, it was awesome. They start connecting dots. And they start doing this. Once they realized that that crab was hanging out in that water, they wanted no part of swimming in that body of water. But here's my point. We sometimes so domesticate God that he's not worth hanging out with. The thing that makes God awesome is the power and greatness of his character that should cause us to go, whoa, and to step back in awe and wonder and to put the brakes on our stupidity, which brings me up to another point here. In fact, before the stupidity part, let me share some wisdom with you. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain said this, and this is stunning. God is both further from us and nearer to us than any other being. Let that blow your mind just for a minute. Let me just say this. I love to read dead people's writings more than alive people's writings. Because there's something about people who lived centuries ago. I think they just, like, paused long enough. They didn't have text messaging and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. So I think they paused a little bit longer to think deeply about things that we should be thinking deeply about. 
And I don't know about you, but I love when I'm reading some things that are blowing my brain and causing inspiring worship to come out of my heart. God is farther from you than any being in the universe and closer to you at the same time. That right there, we could just pause and just say, Lord, we worship you. How do you do that? But only God can do that. Now let's talk about stupid, stupid people. Becoming too casual or familiar with God is like being a foolish tourist. Now, let me tell you about foolish tourists. I thought this was interesting. Each year, four or five people die at the Grand Canyon because of, quote, overly zealous photographic endeavors. What that means is they were taking selfies on the precipice of death. And because they were more concerned with their little selfie, now they're a dead selfie. Because have you ever seen those, those videos that are out on Facebook of people that are trying to get the perfect selfie and they're holding on literally like to a rock precipice while they take their selfie and their fingers slip off and they're dead. Like right there on Facebook, there they were. There they are falling to their death. Four to five people every year will die at the Grand Canyon Because here's what they did. Instead of worshiping, something that immense should inspire worship. Here's the deal. It should make you feel small. It should not inspire you to a selfie. Selfies at that moment are stupid. Worship is smart. Distance is good. Now, I'm going to mess with the young people here a little bit because I know youthfulness and stupidity have not changed. They still often go together. Often. And for all of you laughing that are my age, sometimes maturity and stupidity never separate. They just continue. So I equally offend everybody in the room today. But this is what young people, this is the question they would ask. This represents hell. This is the edge of hell, but still going to heaven. And you all know the question that young people who still don't get it ask. Pastor, how close to the edge of eternal damnation can I get without falling into it and still holding on to a thread of the glory and greatness and majesty of God? Now, they don't say it that way. But that's the question that they're asking, because we would know if this represented eternal damnation, I would not get anywhere near it. I would be hugging God's leg as close as I could get, because that is a stupid selfie, and this is safe. I heard it said one time, you know, people ask, can you lose your salvation again? You not lose your salvation. Uh, How close can you get to the back of the pickup truck without falling off and losing your salvation? Well, here's the answer to that theological conundrum. Get as close to the driver and wrap your arms around his neck, and you'll never have to worry about falling off the back of the truck, because you won't be near the back of the truck. If we focus more on the greatness of God and we focus more with what was at stake, we wouldn't take stupid selfie pictures at the Grand Canyon. We would instead stand back and keep our ground because, listen, awe and wonder and reverence is always associated with that which is dangerous. And sometimes I fear that we're like foolish tourists in the church because if our approach to God 
is, well, how much can I keep sinning and, and keep getting away with it? You're messing with somebody and someone that is incredibly dangerous. That is not a good answer to have. We should be coming into having a sense that when we come into this place, not that this building is holy, but guess what? The people are holy. They're God's people. And when we come here to worship a holy God, I hope we're asking the question, how is my heart? Wouldn't it be great if we were so God conscious that we wouldn't dare set foot in the sanctuary until we had dealt with the unforgiveness and bitterness that's in our heart or the lust that was in our heart or the anger that was in our heart? Or the other things that we constantly drag into God thinking, it's no big deal, he's not going to care. It's like, it's like you're standing on the precipice taking a picture when you should be going, should be going well, I'm not going to mess with that. I don't want to get near that. Let me end with this. You know, on Tuesday night, or Tuesday of last week when we were having our harvest party, 500 years prior in history, of course, you know, launched the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. Those, those 95 Theses were his attempt to bring some correction or at least some question to some of the practices at the church, in the church at that time that he believed were unbiblical and unhealthy. And I don't bring up Luther this morning to, to dive into his theology or to highlight his amazing life, both of which we could spend months and years on. Uh, but here's what I want to do. I want to bring up a, an example of how throughout history, the pendulum swings to different extremes, but usually based on what's lacking in the church. Right now, if I were to ask you, has the pendulum swung to God's transcendence or has the pendulum swung towards God's eminence, his closeness, what would you say? Eminence. Definitely eminence. In fact, I would like to ask you, you, you can tell where we've swung by, listen, by what we sing. You know, we're singing a song now, and I'm not being critical of these songs because they're good songs. But how many of you know that song about, oh, how he loves us, and the song about sloppy wet kiss? You know that song? The song about good, good father? Now listen, these are great songs. People in Luther's day needed some of that. They really did. They needed some of that. When I think of God being like a sloppy wet kiss, what I picture is my child running up to me, jumping on my lap. I sweep them off their feet. I pull them into my arms, and I kiss them profusely till we're like, daddy, daddy, daddy. That's what I think about. And how many of you know that just is a tiny little picture of how much God loves you? It doesn't even do the justice of God, uh, the love of God justice. But that's what we're singing about now. In Luther's day, he was singing... A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark that never changes, a rock. You know, we're singing about the holiness of God. We're singing about the greatness of God. We're singing about the transcendence of God. That's the message that was coming out of the church. And so listen to this. This is, this is an amazing story from his life. And I just throw this out there to challenge us today. When Luther was 21, he became an Augustinian monk. And he went through two years of in-depth training there in the seminary. And it became time for him to do his first Mass two years later. Now, this is what happened. Luther was so overwhelmed at the thought of God's majesty that when time came for him to lead the service, he literally almost sprinted out of the church. In fact, his leaders had to console him and encourage him to stay put. But he was freaking out. Why was he freaking out? Well, years later, he was reflecting upon that moment, and this is what he wrote. He said, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. He said, I didn't think about women. 
I didn't think about money. I wasn't thinking about possessions. Instead, he said, my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow his grace on me. His all-consuming longing was to know the happiness of God's favor. He wrote this, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Can you imagine him realizing the greatness, the holiness, the purity of God, and that he is going to basically serve the, the, the host, the, the Lord's body and shed blood to people, he as a sinner was going to come in contact with the holy God. I mean, in his hands, as they understood communion. And uh, that thought was so terrifying for him that he almost could not stay put. His biggest yearning was to know that somehow a sinner could find favor with God and that God would actually bestow grace. And listen, that God's heart would actually be filled with joy. Now, I just got to ask a question. Who in the world, in America, ever thinks that thought ever when they come to church in the presence of God? Those thoughts are so far from the church today that they almost seem weird. Or we almost want to pe- go up to you know, Luther and pat him on the back and go, come on, dude, lighten up. It's not that, that bad. God's a good, good father. He wants to give you a sloppy, wet kiss. Chill out. But here was his problem. He understood the, the righteousness of God. And he also understood that he's a sinner. And he also understood that it is impossible, the Bible said, for a man to see God and live through the experience. You know, we need to rename our Bibles. Isaiah chapter 6 usually says something like this. Isaiah's commissioning with God. Or Isaiah's call. This is what it should be named. Isaiah survives an encounter with God. The call came out of the encounter. The emphasis isn't on the call. The emphasis is on a sinful man who happened to be the holiest of all sinful men. He was a prophet encountering the abject glory, transcendence, holiness of God, and it left him undone. Let me just say this too. You know, sometimes we have people that, uh, and I believe it's legitimate, God gives us impressions of angels. How many of you know we have angels, we believe in angels, right? But listen to me, every time somebody in the Bible saw a real angel, I mean like real, that was here, they hit the ground and thought they were going to die. That was with an angel. That wasn't God. That was with a created being. So hear me, I'm all about angels, and I believe they're ministering spirits. But don't tell me that you saw a physical angel in your room unless I haven't seen you for three weeks because you couldn't move and you were so overcome with fear and glory from an angel. Because every time somebody has an encounter with God in the Bible, they're on their face. Isaiah had to be lifted up off the ground. Jeremiah had an encounter with God. Paul had an encounter with God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Let's not cheapen the transcendence. Let's not cheapen, because of our intimacy with God, let's not cheapen the transcendence of God so that we actually keep him in his proper tension of this amazingly fearful lion, and yet he's a good, good father, and he's the king of all the world. There's a healthy balance that God wants to strike. Listen to this. Luther, again, thinking about approaching, he said, how dare Me, a sinful Martin Luther, how dare do I approach an infinitely holy and all-powerful God? 
This is what he wrote years later, and I close with this. At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince, who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And listen to what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said about himself. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, a miserable little pygmy, shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, or I want to ask for that. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Can I just say this? The cure for everything we struggle with is not a group hug. It's an encounter with the greatness of God. The group hug comes after the encounter. In fact, if you go to the group hug first, you're going to miss out on your deliverance. Some of you are wondering, can God ever heal me? How big is your God? The problem is you have a small God. Can God fix this situation? How big is, I don't know, how big is the God that you're worshiping? I'm, so, I'm just a fearful person. Well, you got a pathetic God that you're worshiping. I just deal with this. I, you know, I just don't know if, you know. Every time we open our mouths like that, we confess the size of our God. And I'm just asking you, if we are going to display before a starving world that's looking for something real, someone big, a cause worth giving their lives to. I mean, I'm following a, a state representative right now. I, I've had to bite my tongue a thousand times and keep from sending the, hitting the send button because he's on a crusade to legalize medical marijuana in Indiana. Here's what I want to say. For God's sake, are there not greater causes that we could fight for? But when you have a puny God or a non-existent God, you fight for stupid things. That's why we care more for saving dogs than we do for saving babies. We got a puny God. We don't walk in the fear of God. We don't know the holiness of God, and we waste our lives on insignificant stupid, lame things that are not worthy of the investment of your life because your God is too small. See, here's the deal. When we worship a big God, here's the question. What is, when God says, who shall I send? I think we got 500 hands that shoot up in a second. Because when you encounter a God like that, you're like, whatever you want. How might I serve you, Lord? How might, I, how might my life bring you glory? What do you need, Father? How can I bring you glory? How can I help you? What is on your heart? And God said, you know, I'm thinking about this. Count me in. See, the problem, we, we try to get everybody to join the cause, and the problem is we got such a lame cause because we got a puny God, and what we do on Sunday morning seems so pathetic. Why do I bother getting out of bed to go to church? It's raining outside. I could, I could be out chasing a golf ball. I could be chasing a little white ball on a golf course. Why would I go to church? Are you kidding me? 
My heart breaks that we have not given people a reason to get their lazy butts out of bed on a Sunday morning to worship the King of glory. The one day a week when you never have to worry about traffic. I mean, it's hilarious and so heartbreaking. So heartbreaking that our God is so pathetic. We we can't even compete with the cheap idols of entertainment. That is our burden. We have a responsibility to display the greatness of God to a starving generation. I hope as God's sons and daughters, as as a good, good father wooing us to his lap, I hope that part of what we burn with in our intimacy with God is a desire to make his name great in our generation. And if, if listen to me, church, if we don't do it, who is going to do it? That's why I laid on the carpet and I wept. I wept because I'm jealous for God. I wept because of my own sin. I wept because of my own lukewarmness. I wept because of my own ineptness in speech and in writing to communicate about this God that we serve in such a way that it would compel people to want to know more. When I read some of John Piper's writings and I see the way he uses the king's language, I literally have laid on the floor and said, God, help me to speak like that. Help me to write like that. Why? Because the glory of God is at stake in our generation. People are starving for a great big God and we're the only answer to the problem and we're so weak and so, so coming up so shorthanded in the deal that we have to say, God, we need help. God, we need help. God, I need more of you. God, I need a greater revelation. God, my brain needs help. Why do I have such a hard time even remembering scripture verse? God, I need help. I don't know if anybody needs help besides me. I just want to tell you, I'm pathetic and I need help. I'm a pygmy. Like my, If Martin Luther is a pygmy, what does that make me? Think about that for a moment. A miserable pygmy. Half of a pygmy. A pygmy pygmy. We can laugh at this, but do you see the tension? I don't want anybody to leave here today without knowing that God's incredibly excited about you, and you're really not a pygmy. But you know what? You'll never be a true son or daughter until you've first been a pygmy. (laughs) What right do I have to be a son of God? Look in the mirror and ask yourself the same question. What right do you have to to experience the salvation of God? Did you earn it? Is there any merit in you? Are you so smart? You're so good? You're so kind? That's why you're here? You're here because the same reason I'm here, the mercy of God. And until you've laid on your face and, and, and realized no one looks at God and lives through the experience, you'll never experience intimacy with God through Christ Jesus. That's the way this thing works. I'm telling you, here's what I want. The next three or four weeks, we're going to sing songs. We will not be singing about sloppy wet kisses over the next four weeks. It's okay, we will. We're going to sing about that in December. We're not singing about it in November. We are going to magnify the greatness of God. We are going to get our eyes off of us, and we are going to get our eyes on the greatness of God. 
We're going to sing about his attributes. We're going to enjoy who he is. We're going to make much of him. Can you join me? When we worship, there, there should be like every cell in our being screaming out with joy to express our passion for God. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? When we're like, we're like, God, there's no one like you in all the earth. God, you're sovereign in power. God, nothing is impossible. What are we doing? We're bragging on God. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what should be coming off your spirit. You're boasting in the Lord. And the louder you can boast, the better. You know, when you're at a football game and you're like, noise, noise. Those little cheerleaders down there, noise. What are you doing? Wah! You want that place to be mayhem. You know what? Church should be better than the Notre Dame football game. I got to tell you, I got, I got invited to go to the game yesterday. That's why it's on my mind. And I felt bad because right in front of us were the Wake Forest cheerleaders. You don't want to be a Wake Forest cheerleader at a Notre Dame home game. And what was really funny was there's 80,000 people there cheering for Notre Dame. And there's eight girls in front of the Notre Dame cheering section holding up signs that said, noise. No one was making any noise. Because you don't cheer for the Wake Forest team at Notre Dame Stadium. And then somebody was going to give the band a penalty for playing while the game was going on. So they said, will the band please refrain from playing during the game? Well, then everybody in the stadium took that as a personal offense. And the people were louder than the band. Nobody could hear on the opposition. Do you understand when we get together, that's what we're doing. The devil's going, can you guys please tone it down? And we're like, oh, really? We want to give the enemy a nightmare every time we come together. We want people when they come in here to go, wow, God is great in that place. We feel his presence. We sense his greatness. I want to be a part of those people. Come on, stand to your feet. We want to pray. Come on, let's give the Lord a shout on the way out. Hallelujah. Woo! We love you. We honor you, Lord. We boast in you. We give you glory. There's no God like you. Nothing is impossible for you. None like you, Lord. Awesome, awesome, magnificent God. Oh, Father, we magnify your greatness in the best way that we know how. God, we know it's incomplete. We know we don't even understand a fraction of how incredibly awesome you are. But, Lord, receive our praise as we get ready to leave here today. And Lord, I pray that this mantle, this weight of the responsibility to magnify your greatness to a world that's starving. God, burn in our hearts with that. The way we treat people, the way we love, the way we love our spouse, the way we treat our children, the way we go to work, it all matters. What is at stake? Your glory is at stake. God, help us. Help us. Lord, I pray that we'd be gripped in our hearts where we need to be gripped with a healthy fear of you. Lord, where we've been standing at the cliff taking selfies when we should have been backing off and worshiping you and realizing who you are. God, help us. Jerk our chain where we need an adjustment, God. And Father, become large in our eyes once again. Help us to be quiet, to be still, and to know that you are God. And to honor you, Lord, for who you are. 
that we wouldn't whine or murmur or gossip or complain or, or, or be filled with unbelief, Lord, but that our hearts would be full of praise and thanksgiving. Jesus, we love you and we honor you. God, help us. Holy Spirit, come even now and help us to walk in the holiness of the Lord, the fear of God, to walk in the joy of the Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, help us, help us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being our Father at the same time. God, we need you. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.